The only purpose of the Talking Space podcast is to educate and to inform. The views expressed in this program are the opinions, experiences, and conclusions of the guests. They do not represent the official policy or position of the Space Troop Society as a whole, NASA, any other space agency, company, contractor, or affiliate. and welcome on board the Good Ship Talking Space for Wednesday, March 23rd, 2011. Uh, my name is Gene McCalka, and I'm here with uh, one of our usuals and, uh, and a, a special guest today, uh, Mark Mark Ratterman. Hello there. How are you doing today? That's the uh, nicest compliment I've had in a long time, being referred to as a usual rather than an unusual. <laughs> so uh, thanks. I owe you. <laughs> Sorry about that, Mark. And uh, our our special guest panelist today is uh, now with the uh, a great reporter with the Ottawa Business Journal and also a, runs the uh, Parsec blog. Uh, good evening, Liz Howell. How are you doing? I'm doing quite well. And how about you, Gene? I'm doing pretty good today. We've got a lot to go ahead and hash around. Mark, you've been a busy little beaver, haven't you, over at the Kennedy Space Center? Uh, you were over at the... Uh, uh, discovery arrival uh, for landing a couple weeks ago, and uh, you also uh, went to see the Endeavor uh, rollout and uh, got some pretty good information for us. Yeah, I'll give you a quick rundown. You know, here's the funny side of it, though. Here, here I am, a guy that's been hanging around airports for over half of my life, which is a pretty long time at this point. And I was, I was there at the press site and uh, wasn't able to get out to the shuttle landing field at, uh, at the right time. So anyway, I'm there. I see a group of people that are looking up and pointing, and I look up. I could not find Discovery in flight to save my life. But it did land. That's the good news, uh, even though I didn't see it, which, you know, got to be thankful for that, considering I haven't seen it shuttle land yet, so I, I guess I've continued my string, but uh, Discovery landed, and a few hours later was amongst the press that went out to the intersection of the towway and State Road 3 and got to see Discovery uh, being towed back for the last time from the landing strip to the OPF, and uh, it was an interesting an interesting sight to see the shuttle from a couple hundred feet away, to see it literally within hours of when it had landed, and to realize the significance of that. And I heard comments from the, the press conference that took place a little bit later that um, the mission managers and, and uh, spoke of how impressed they were with the ground crew about how they hit the shuttle when it landed. They didn't treat it like it was its last landing. They treated it like it had another dozen flights to go. And that's how they treated that ship. And I, it spoke to the professionalism of, of that group of, of workers. And, uh, but I did get to see Discovery towed back and, uh, 
I'm glad I was there. Uh, sorry I missed the landing. Can't say anything firsthand other than that uh, I was listening to the NASA uh, commentator and heard him say over the loudspeaker system, and there's Discovery with her sonic booms as she returns to KSC, and you could hear the sonic booms through the loudspeaker, and I thought, well, that's odd. I haven't heard them yet. And that's the old speed of sound in uh, at, at ground level. It took about six seconds, and then I heard the sonic booms. So a little, little lesson in... Uh, in science there. Uh, the next day, I saw Endeavor's rollout from inside the VAB. They gave us access to uh, ground level, the level 5 and level 16 of the VAB to take pictures of that historic rollout. And um, I uh, had probably mentioned to Sawyer in, in some communications with him that I saw his girl and that's how he refers to Endeavor and that she looked good. I mean, Endeavor seriously looked just phenomenal. I know they didn't do anything probably but the normal job they do in prepping the orbiter for flight, but it was so impressive. And it wasn't just that, that you were there to see it, but you could see it so well that you knew how good a condition that orbiter is in. And um, the next day had a payload briefing, and I'll just mention this very quickly, had a payload briefing for the 134 mission. And we had uh, the payload mission manager, Joe, Joe DeLai, Ken Bolweg, the deputy project manager for AMS, and also Professor Samuel Ting. He's the principal investigator for AMS from MIT and heard these people speak and talk about the payloads on 134 and focused on AMS and then got to go inside the space station processing facility and see AMS from 20 feet away. And we'll talk more about AMS in a future show. Um, catch my breath and catch my uh, train of thought here. I guess what's the next thing? Uh, oh, yesterday had another... Uh, STS-134 event at KSC. The advantages of living in Florida, even though I'm three hours away, at least I can get to KSC in three hours when they approve access to it. Uh, they had another payload uh, photo opportunity, and a group of press was out at the launch pad. We got to talk to some of these mission managers and another gentleman that I met and got to talk about AMS and the other payloads. Plus, we got to... Uh, go up on the flat surface of the pad and take pictures. You could see the, um, forget the terminology, you could see the payload canister. It had been transferred into the payload checkout room. The RSS, of course, was open, so you could see both. And uh, they did tell us that the flow for Endeavor is going well, that they have uh, no issues, that they're concerned with, and they're moving forward towards that planned launch date of April 19th, and uh, let's hope that holds up, because I know a lot of people are planning on it. Yeah, they uh, released the specifics of the mission plan for SKS-134, I believe it was last week sometime, and it looks like, too, they've uh, they've built in one more extra day in there, so then this way, that the, if they need to, the, the crew can go ahead and assist the uh, the ISS team in, uh, in moving you know, things and getting things out of uh 
uh, out of the shuttle or getting out of things out of the uh, out of the uh, the two other cargo vehicles that are that are docked there, or just just helping out with, with normal tasks. It also, it looks like that fly around is back on the docket too. So it looks like they're, they're going to try to go ahead and see if they can get that fly around with with the Soyuz uh, going. At least uh, you know we'll keep our fingers crossed with that. There is some <clears throat> there is some eng- apparently, uh, if I recall. Uh, Bill Gerstenmeier saying that there is, you know, aside from the historic value of it, um, there is a uh, uh, some engineering uh, questions that still have to be answered, and they're hoping that this fly around will go ahead and do that. Just another note back on STS-133 Discovery, I saw some messages on Twitter from someone that apparently is a uh, a worker in that ground processing crew. And the tweet is this, just got out of Discovery, I powered down the fuel cells, it hit me as I brought the last one down that she would never be on her own again. And uh, and uh, another one that I just happened to see uh, by the same individual is, tonight we pulled the FRCS, the Forward Reaction Control System, off Discovery for the last time. A lot of lasts happening makes me appreciate the little things more and a smile. Yeah, and wow, Mark, that, that's still... Kind of taking it home to KSC and to the folks that make it happen. And you know, it goes to show you that engineers can write, so please don't anybody ever underestimate them in that sense. <laughs> I have Good that, one. I have that argument. We've heard that argument all the time where I work, so... Unfortunately, uh, things have not been all that rosy at uh, the Kennedy Space Center of late. Uh, just last week, a, uh, a, a fatal accident occurred at Pad 39A. Um, a, a gentleman by the name of James uh, Vanover, uh, an engineer over there, apparently had, had taken a fall and, and unfortunately fell to his death. And uh, uh, it, it's, it's a stark reminder that the people that work on these things take great almost as much risk as the folks that go ahead and walk in, into these spacecraft and fly them. Um, spacecraft and spaceflight in general is still a risky business, and that was uh, a clear demonstration of that right there. It was, I believe, Mark, and, and folks correct me if I'm wrong, that was the first accident in 30 years at Pad 39A, if I'm not mistaken. The first one that I recall, I think, was on STS-1, if I'm not mistaken. That's, uh, it's, a, it's a shock to hear of that. You know that in, in any kind of industry and work that, that there are injuries, and uh, there's an incredible amount of focus that, that goes into what are our work practices, what are our procedures, Have we? is there something we can improve? And um, it, it's a shock, and and this late in the program to to have that happen. But uh, accidents do happen, and let's pray this is the last. And uh, NASA has been uh, good enough to provide a support worker on scene, and has told the uh, the people who are still working on the uh, the preparations to take their time. If need a few minutes, it's okay to step away. Um, it's a very, very difficult time, unimaginably difficult for these people who are continuing to, uh, to do the work there. So it's good to see that it's being acknowledged and that even though they, uh, they do want to move forward with uh, the mission, that they are uh, taking some time for themselves just to make sure that everybody stays uh, 
as focused as they can under such difficult circumstances. Indeed, indeed, Liz. Uh, Mark, you were down. You, you spent the, a good amount of time at KSC. Do you get that general idea that everybody's still kind of sort of focused on what's going on? You know, what I saw was pretty much business as usual. Of course, I was at the press site. I was with those folks when we were out at the pad uh, yesterday morning. You know, there were there were people, you know, working. Um, I heard an announcement over the. The PA system that identified some more work that was about to start, um, and so you know they've they've certainly not shut down, um, and I, I I don't know what the mood would be of the the people there. You know it's probably one of those situations where everybody's double checking what they normally or they're triple checking what they normally double check and. Uh, They'll 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 do fine. These are professionals. Um, yeah, I don't know. I, I know it just has people that have already heard about it and hearing us talk about it just shaking their heads. And uh, yeah, I I hear you, Mark. And uh, on behalf of the entire Talking Space family, we uh, we extend our condolences and uh, our uh, our heartfelt wishes to everybody over at KSC over the loss. Um, unfortunately, it also looks like the, there was some other bad news to come out of uh, KSC as well. Um, uh, Mark, you brought this this little story to my attention. This was um, uh, a News 13 uh, report from the uh, uh, CFNNews13.com website. Um, it looks like, again, um, a, uh, a, an illegal substance has unfortunately been shown up over at KSC, correct? That's right. It was the day after the uh, the accident where the worker uh, fell and, and died, but uh, unfortunately they found some cocaine. It was confirmed that it was cocaine. It was 4.2 grams, and, uh, and I'd missed this. It was discovered earlier, but information about it had just come out. Well, you know, it, it, I, I don't know if it's if it's just, you know, it, 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 it's troubling to see that. But, I mean, you, you have this, you have the, these type of problems, not just at the Kennedy Space Center, but at workplaces all over the country and probably all over the world. Had, you know, so it's, it's, it's interesting to see that the problem is not just endemic to, you know, the work, you know, is is endemic all over all over the place. I guess is what I'm trying to say. Well, away from the uh, the somber news and back on to some some very interesting interesting news coming out of NASA. The uh, the Messenger spacecraft uh, went into orbit around Mercury last week. Uh, this is the first spacecraft to go ahead and and do uh, to go into orbit around Mercury. Um, so that this is this is uh, kind of significant. This is the first time that we're kind of sort of going ahead and looking at our the nearest planet to the sun with any scrutiny. Um, folks, what do you guys what do you guys see with the uh, significance of Messenger? Oh, Messenger was one of those uh, missions that you've you've heard about it, you've heard about it, and you've heard about it, and it was always in the future. You know, I remember the flybys mm-hmm. that it made to uh, Mercury, 
but uh, it always seemed like, well, it's going to enter orbit, but it's later, and well, later has come, and after six and a half years and 4.9 billion miles and uh, a lot of maneuvering, I think there was a flyby of Earth, am I right? Uh, there are actually six flybys, I believe, of uh, several planets, Earth, Venus, Mercury itself, so quite a complicated figure eight of maneuvers happening there. And it was right on the money from what I read. It, w- it was indeed. The interesting thing is uh, they're hoping to answer a little bit of a, a puzzling question. Now, we've, we've already found out that there is indeed water on the moon. It's It kind of resides in, uh, in at the lunar south pole in one of these little deep, dark crevices there. There is actually ice sitting in there. question is, is there any water ice there? And that's been something in the um, that's been sort of plaguing scientists for a long time, and that's one of the, the questions that Messenger hopes to answer with us. So it should be interesting to see if the same thing um, on, that that we're witnessing on the Moon, uh, you know, near the polar regions, also exists for Mercury. There are other things that I'm wondering as well. I was reading that uh, Mercury is, has actually shrunk over its uh, its lifetime, and I was thinking. How is that possible? It's, it's a rocky planet, or what we think is a rocky planet. It has some kind of a magnetic field as well, which is something that uh, Venus and Mars have. So it's something that is close to us and that we think we might understand maybe just from looking at it from a distance. But I think that it really will take a spacecraft dedicated to observing it for a number of years to solve just weird little oddities about it, uh, such as this one. And now we have that spacecraft. So it should be interesting to see what our, what our uh, orbiting detective is able to go ahead and glean into Mercury and try to go ahead and tap its mysteries. It should be a fun mission to watch, and I'm looking really, really looking forward to it. Alrighty, moving away from Mercury, um, we go back to Earth orbit and looking at the International Space Station. Uh, back on March 17th, uh, the Europeans agreed to support the ISS through about tw- through the year 2020. Uh, the decisions. Uh, took about, uh, I'm sorry, decisions were, according to the BBC article, the decisions were taken at a two-day council meeting of uh, the European Space Agency at its headquarters in in Paris. Um, and just for uh, everyone's information, according to the BBC News here, Europe is an 8% partner in the ISS project with the United States, Russia, Japan, and Canada. Um and uh, the uh, ESA's space station ma- manager said the announcement from the council was a significant development, quote, close quote. Um, what do you guys, I'm going to throw this out there. What do you guys you guys think about this? You think uh, this is a good good deal that Europe has also agreed to say, hey, we're going to go ahead and continue supporting ISS ops through 2020? Well, it's a pretty good thing considering that uh, they're one of the only parties capable of bringing cargo up there right now. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That would have been bad. <laughs> yeah, that would have been very bad. Yeah, exactly. But, uh, you know, more seriously, um, it does show the beginning of the shift from looking at the uh, the station as a construction site to something that is more like a living, breathing science laboratory. And so and now that they're committed, they can kind of figure out what sort of microgravity research would be the most useful for them. And uh, they didn't really outline, as far as I could tell, exactly what that stuff would be. But, you know, now they've got plenty of time. They're committed until at least 2020. They can go back to their scientific councils and figure out uh, what is best to pursue. They can look at options for uh, actually bringing more astronauts to the station, which I know is something that they're also uh, hoping to get out of the deal. 
And uh, it would just be a good way to continue uh, putting European science up in space, which is something they've been doing all the way back since, uh, gosh, probably even before Space Lab in uh, the shuttle. Indeed. Uh, also, you made an interesting little observation there, there Liz, about, uh, about the ISS finally becoming, you know, coming into its own. And uh, I think the last uh, shuttle mission, STS-133, kind of sort of demonstrated that. Here we had, you know, uh, Discovery, the American orbiter, with the uh, the Japanese HTV and the uh, the ATV um, from uh, from the from Europe. Uh, we had the uh, you know some really sophisticated robotics going on, courtesy of the uh, Canadian constructed RMS. Um, you know, it, this is really getting to be you know a Great science platform for uh, for life sciences, and I hope it I hope it gets utilized to, to its maximum. And I think that's what the Europeans want to do here. They want to make sure they get the bang out of the buck. Well, they spent enough time constructing it. It was in, in construction since what 1998. The uh, the yes. station. Yeah. So uh, we have more than a decade of uh, just trying to put the thing together. So you would hope that we would get at least a decade, if not more, of use, given the uh, the time, the expense, and you know we're not only talking about the actual construction. The uh, the idea of a space station has been going back since uh, about the 1960s. So uh, to have it up there is uh, an opportunity that just uh, shouldn't be squandered. So you know if there is a sustainable way of keeping it going for uh, quite some time. That probably be a good thing. Indeed, um, just just really want to make sure we get get our bang out of the buck, you know, our, our bang, bang for the buck here as far as the uh, the International Space Station goes. And it looks like we're we're doing it. And uh, I think even the commentator had indicated that this thing now weighs how much? Uh, over uh, close to about a million pounds of, of hardware that goes over our heads every ninety minutes. And, and it's that's... the size of a couple of football fields. It's just astounding to think about. Yeah, I mean, you could, you could. I, I mean, I, I've seen it during the day. <laughs> that tells you anything, <laughs> you know. So, I mean, this this thing is huge. So, it, it justifiably so, I think that that we we go ahead and and make sure that uh, this asset that we've spent ten years building and another, you know, that you know, we've. But we go ahead and get the most out of it that we possibly can. And now that Europe, Europe has, has said, hey, we're on board, that says something right there. Got another little tidbit that I read from a BBC uh, article about uh, ESA's interest in the space station. And it mentions that uh, Europe does not have their own communications connection to the ISS. They use the Americans and pay for it. And uh, they mentioned they relate it to a telephone bill. And if we have our own installation, we would have cost avoidance on one hand and more flexibility and autonomy on the other. And that surprised me. You think of everything as just being shared. But there are assets that the different partners have put up. And, of course, they have to justify their expenditures. And and this is part of it. It gives them an opportunity with the extended life of the ISS to plan for another communications channel. And uh, really that benefits the whole partnership. And as far as partnership, I'm, I'm struck with, with what I've learned about AMS and this particularly, that it really takes the financial commitment from all of the partners to, to keep things going and to keep things going well. And congratulations to ESA for, for their commitment and there certainly is no good time to be spending 
millions and hundreds of millions and billions of, of dollars, but uh, they've seen through to to make it happen. I'm going to just throw something out, out for, uh, for thought here. Do you guys see this as the beginning of possibly using this new partnership that's been constructed through you know, through the, the ISS project for future missions, like, say, going back to the moon or on Mars? Where are they going to find the money to do that? I mean, when you think about when the uh, the ISS was built, that was pre this Great Recession or whatever uh, everybody is calling it. And uh, especially for the next few years, I look into the U.S., I'm Canadian myself, I look into the U.S. and I see troubles with the housing market cropping up in some small sectors. And uh, in Canada, uh, we're going to get into this a little bit later on, but um, the federal government is going to be slowing its spending, which is going to have all sorts of effects on uh, different industries across the country. So I just don't know where anybody's going to have the money unless there's uh, some kind of really wonderful uh, partnership with the private sector to do uh, anything that ambitious. But uh, that's just my take. What about you, Mark? I think that uh, at some point we'll... It may be a threshold that we'll cross that we won't even realize we've passed, and I couldn't begin to guess how long it'll take. But I think there'll be a point where being able to do certain tasks in orbit will be seen as being profitable. And when there's a profit involved, then it can change from being a government-funded research program to being something that businesses will invest in because they see it as being just plain old profitable. And uh, it could be that sort of thing that will enable us to to actually see plans to, to go to Mars and to, to go beyond low Earth orbit, I certainly hope. I, don't know, I, I think this is actually the beginning of a beautiful friendship, to, to use a quote from a, from a movie of mine. Uh, to a favorite movie of mine, and uh, I, I think too that this little consortium that has been built to to support the International Space Station might be go, you know, uh, funds will be going ahead and pooled for exploration's sake. And if the commercial sector can jump in on that, all the better. Um, it's just I, I I really think this is a step forward um, for for not only for for space exploration here, but you know perhaps in other areas too. If we've got an agreement to, on the ISS, who knows? Maybe it might extend out, and and we might be a little, uh, you know, trade agreements might be a little better to achieve, and so on and so forth. I might be too idealistic thinking about that, but uh, in in those those manners, but uh, who knows? You know, might might actually be the beginnings of something. So, anyhow, um, it was a a report over on. Uh, See on the uh, CBC News web- website that uh, Canada might be falling behind in the space business. Um, according to the BBC, a major—I mean, I'm sorry, the CBC. Uh, strike that. A major Canadian space business group is, express, is expressing concern that Canada may eventually fall behind in the increasing the competitive field of satellites and other such technology. Close quote. Liz, what do you think? I mean, the, the, I mean, the the RMS you know, has been, you know, the remote, uh, uh, you know, the, that robotic arm that the shuttle uses has been an incredible piece of machinery, and it's been working very well. Uh, Canada has made such contributions to the success of the International Space Station program. 
how, how do you see this impacting us? The thing is, you're right. There has been generation about of, of success concerning a robotic technology. We've got the Canada Arm, the Canada Arm 2. Now we have the Dexter robotic hand up there assisting those two um, instruments with their work. But the uh, the real sense in the uh, the manufacturing, the space manufacturing industry in Canada is just what's next. You know, now that all of these things have been built, where are we supposed to be using our uh, robotic arms in the future? And um, there is actually some work out there. Um, the Canadian Space Agency tendered some contracts um, back about uh, six months ago, one year ago, asking for prototypes of Mars and moon rovers. And some of these rovers would also include robotic arms of sorts. So we are still using the robotics technologies in other ways, but there's just a lot of concern about um, exactly what to do, especially because uh, other nations, such as Japan, which is also pointed out in this article, are uh, quite rightly uh, getting onto the technology themselves because uh, they see a business use for it. Indeed, let's not forget about Robonaut 2 either. That one's, you know, that, uh, admittedly, that, that was a, a General Motors construct, but, uh, you know, we're starting to sort of get, in, get into it as well. Um, how does this dovetail? I mean, was you were in a very interesting meeting just yesterday. It, well, I was actually, budget. yeah. So, uh, what happened was um, the federal government in Canada uh, decided to come up with uh, its annual budget. And what happens is, uh, I'm not actually sure, you must have a similar process in the States, but here when they are about to announce the budget in the House of Commons um, on a particular day, they always do it in the late afternoon. And then in the morning, they open up um, a conference center downtown to journalists and uh, other interested parties, and you're able to go in and view the budget, but you're doing it without Internet access. You have to give up your cell phone. It's a lockdown, basically. So you're just in there. You're pouring over documents. You're trying to figure out what's happening. So while I was frantically wading through 350 pages of budget, I happened to come across a very brief, not even half a page mention, about a strategic review of the aerospace industry in Canada. Now, what's interesting about that is there actually was another review ordered of the Canadian Space Agency not three years ago. And uh, at the time, the reason that they uh, ordered this review was one of our companies, um, actually the same one that uh, works on the Canada, uh, McDonald, Detweiler and Associates, um, they had to, or they wanted to, sell their space division to a firm in the United States, a small firm in Virginia, and uh, it was blocked. The, the federal government actually came along and they said, you can't do it, full stop, it violates Canadian ownership rules. Uh, mainly because um, McDonald, Detweiler, and Associates also have a satellite called RadarSat, which uh, appears at mainly Canada's north, looking for changes in the ice, changes in land use. And they just were concerned that, uh, sorry guys, this isn't meant personally, but for defense considerations and such, they were just afraid that if the Americans had access to this data, there could be some sovereignty concerns. So uh, anyway, after this happened, there was a big hullabaloo. People were saying that the Canadian Space Agency does not give enough support to its companies, that uh, it funds, and that there should be some other way around it. And so uh, immediately afterwards, the Canadian government said, okay, there's going to be this long-term space review of the uh, long-term space plan for the Canadian Space Agency. We're going to do it right away. And then all of a sudden, an election happened, and then it was sort of forgotten. Um, I do know that uh, Canadian Space Agency President uh, Steve McLean, who was appointed at the same time that the plan was ordered, did do a review with uh, several aerospace companies. I spoke to them myself. They said it was in progress, but it appears to have sort of been put on a back burner. So just to bring this back to the news that happened uh, this week, now the Canadian space, the Canadian government rather, is saying, okay, we want to do a review of the entire aerospace industry, which includes not only, of course, stuff that's happening up in orbit, but uh, stuff that's happening with fighter jets and other sort of aerospace 
uh, specifically airplane stuff happening in Canada. So uh, that has drawn concern from uh, the same people who were worried about the uh, the robotics problem, which is uh, the Canadian Space Commerce Association. And they actually came out with a statement um, this morning saying that they feel that aerospace and space are two very separate sectors and that uh, everything shouldn't be lumped together in one thing because they have very different needs, um, even though both are very export-driven, one is much larger than the other, and they just have different priorities altogether. So uh, it sounds like that if this budget is to pass, which is, of course, probably not going to happen right away, there's going to be an election likely coming up in Canada um, announced very soon, but um, there's going to be some interesting talk, that's for sure, about the uh, the future of space in the coming months, just, to ter- just depending on who's in charge when the, uh, when the, uh, the hammer finally falls. Liz, do you think this is going to be a political um, uh, hot button up there, or is this just going to be like it, like it is over here, like oh well? Um, the thing is, the uh, what's being talked about in Parliament right now, it's uh, more a matter of how the Harper government is treating or is perceived to have treated Parliament, and uh, it's a lot of uh, it's a lot of political banter up here, just about whether um, Stephen Harper, our Prime Minister, has been following the rules of Parliament. Um, he's been held in contempt by uh, by a couple of uh, party, a couple of um, elements in Parliament. The Speaker of the House passed a historic motion recently saying that uh, the government is in contempt of Parliament. So, it's really a matter of how the Conservatives, which are the ruling party here in Canada, have been treating the other parties, basically in their everyday work, just uh, over in the House of Commons. And um, it seems that a lot of the other issues, um, like this, or like matters of defense, or energy policy or anything like that are probably almost going to be left aside as uh, the parties focus more on each other's records um, mm-hmm. and how they have been treating each other just when they're sitting across the floor from each other. So, you know, that's that's often the way that uh, the government works. And uh, we just have to hope that while this whole process is happening, that any sort of interest groups like the, uh, the Canadian Sp- Space Commerce Association, if they have any kind of issues, just speak up, you know, just try and raise awareness through their various constituents um, the great thing about having a space commerce association is, of course, you have business on your side, and business tends to be a pretty powerful force, um, especially with the conservatives. They have been very uh, good about things like uh, implementing a corporate tax cut. So uh, they certainly have shown that they are friendly to business, but I guess sort of the question is, in the minds of the Canadian Space Commerce Association, what kind of business they are friendly to? And just just a, one more follow-up question with this. Has the Canadian Space Agency said anything with reference to to any of this at all? Not at all, but um, as we all know, um, Steve McLean, who is the president of the Canadian Space Agency, is a pretty uh, media-shy guy. He only seems to uh, to come out every once in a while to, uh, to talk about uh, matters like this. And uh, just to put this in context, um, when it comes to um, government policy, the Canadian Space Agency is a government department, and departments generally don't speak for themselves for, uh, well, probably obvious reasons in a situation like this. Uh, Mark, does this have any like sounding familiar stuff at all? <laughs> yeah, particularly what you said just then about uh, you know individual departments not speaking for themselves so much. You you kind of got to pay attention to who's writing your paycheck, and you can't really go out on a limb with uh, with your own ideas. They have to conform to what the government as a whole is is directing, and so. Um, you wonder how how much the same everybody is where there's many people in in many centers around the world that are that are making lists of this is what I'd like to do this is what I'd like to do 
and then it comes down to the uh, the leadership of the organization, the leadership of the country making those decisions. Uh, I suspect we're all much alike in that respect, and particularly when we're tied to a uh, a budget. Indeed, do you, do you guys think that um, uh, you folks, uh, the, the Canadian Space Agency, is waiting for the other shoe to drop here um, with NASA? Because right now, our own <laughs> our own space policy is sort of in a shambles. It looks like we have committed to at least supporting the ISS through uh, through 2020, but you know, any type of exploration initiative or even a replacement for the shuttle is still you know a, a bit of a contention. Do you think? think uh, that, that, the, that the Canadian Space Agency is also trying to keep an eye on what's going on uh, to the south and saying, okay, we'll try to figure out what's going on, or even even the commercial concerns. They're saying, okay, let's try to see what, what, how what NASA does is going to impact us. And that's exactly it. Um, the Canadian Space Agency tends to proceed through partnership to uh, to get its work done. So it works with the Americans, works also with the Europeans, and uh, we're also starting to consider uh, other alliances as well. I mean, when you think about it, things like uh, Chris Hadfield, one of uh, one of our astronauts, he's going to be flying up on a Soyuz uh, next year, which is uh, not a shuttle, you know, and that's happened before. Uh, we had another astronaut, Bob Thurst, do that before, and um, they're just as a uh, a general air of needing to restrain government spending um, here in Ottawa, which is uh, where I am, uh, because there, we had a bunch of stimulus funding that uh, was put out in association with uh, trying to recover from the recession, and it was supposed to run out this year, and it is. So now that it's run out, um, the government's in a great deficit, just like uh, what you guys are facing there. We're about uh, $44 billion in debt this year. So, sorry, in deficit. I should make that clear. In deficit this year. And uh, they're trying to figure out how to bring things back online. They had a plan outlined in the budget. Uh, I actually saw a nice little graph showing how they're hoping to return to profitability by, I think, about 2015. And so uh, part of the way they're doing that is going to be by cutting government uh, spending in various departments. And I'm sure that the Canadian Space Agency isn't immune to these pressures. So, you know, on the one hand, it's sort of a difficulty for the uh, any sort of commerce firm um, that traditionally relies on uh, funding from the agency, but on the other hand, it's an opportunity. It means that they just have to turn around and look for another way to make business happen, and there have been a number of uh, firms, particularly here in Ottawa, that have sort of uh, gone out to find other streams of income, and uh, I actually wrote an article about this. Um, Gene, remind me, do you guys have uh, links to any articles on the website, or should I just mention it right here? You can mention it here, but we'll also put it in the show notes. Okay, that's great. Um, I'll put it up on my blog tonight. That's parsec.com. P-A-R-S-3-C.com. So I'll have, a, uh, I'll have a link to the article, and you can take a look at it for yourselves. Very good. It just seems to me, too, that you folks are, are the folks over in Canada are having similar problems to us here, and uh, you know, we'll have to work out a, uh, a solution that's, that's going to be uh, beneficial to everybody. But right now, I just don't. Unfortunately, the writing's on the wall, and uh, uh, we'll just have to see what happens. I mean, NASA's budget alone is, has been flat historically and it looks like in this incantation it's also going to remain flat which is you know really really bad news for uh, trying to go ahead and, and build the next uh, you know the next uh, successor to the shuttle so and that's um, how the Canadian Space Agency is faring too they had uh, 370 million dollars in base funding that has remained unchanged for I don't even know how many years a number of years and then um, when the recession came along and the government decided to implement more spending, they basically just handed the Canadian Space Agency $100 million and said, okay, here over the next three years is what you've got. 
And now that pocket of money is gone, so they're back to normal levels, it appears, or may even be a bit less now with this uh, strategic review coming up. So you're right. You know, um, there's restraint on all sides. Um, our, my country isn't immune. Your country isn't immune. Probably everybody's having the same conversation. So uh, we just need to figure out how to be more efficient and make more money, I guess. <laughs> yeah, I guess. And yeah. Um, maybe maybe uh, this commercial impl- implementation that's coming will, will help us do that. Exactly, yeah. And just, just for a little little long time ago perspective, one of our friends that uh, we've talked with has made the comment that they see the same things happening with the U.S. space program today as happened with Apollo in the uh, in the 60s, where it kind of lost that direction of the next step, and uh, it's a shame. The difference, I, I know who you're talking about, and uh, we, will, we will be talking to her in the not-too-distant future, but... Um, uh, the, Again, at least with Apollo, shuttle was sort of waiting in the wings. We knew it was there. The first one was being constructed, or at least uh, was authorized for construction, uh, over in Palmdale uh, at the then Rockwell plant. And at least we knew the shuttle was coming. Right now, we don't know what's coming. And that's the big difference between the two. Um, I mean, grant you the same scenario is, is painting itself out. With reference to the, you know, anybody associated with the shuttle, as far as getting, you know, getting the axe and and, and jobs dissolving and and so on. I mean, people who built you know, back in Apollo days, people who were building uh, the lunar module one day were out selling, you know, out out being hot dog vendors the next to feed their family. So you know, we we're and we're doing the same mistake again this time, but. I guess what I'm saying now is we're really in, in uncharted territory because we don't know what the next step is right now. There is nothing waiting in the wings, and that's what concerns me. Alrighty, speaking of uh, politics, we're moving on to uh, one of our last stories. Apparently, U.S. Senator uh, Richard Durbin and uh, Mark Kirk, both from Illinois, had written a little bit of a note to uh, NASA Administrator Charles Bolden um, asking for an orbiter. Apparently, they want to go ahead and place an orbiter at the Adler Planetarium, just outside Chicago. I'm looking at uh, at the note here, uh, penned by uh, Mr. Durbin. He says that uh, Adler is, of course, America's first planetarium. It's a... uh, world-renowned science museum located right there on Lake Michigan there. Um, business leaders have, uh, have helped uh, Adler in the past um, and so on, and it is a mecca for, for science and technology and can get uh, the, uh, the news out on, on those, those, uh, those fields. And they feel that a space shuttle orbiter at, at, at the Adler Planetarium will enable them to go ahead and continue their mission of education. Um, guys, I have my own opinions here, but I would rather hear it from you, from, from both of you. Um, Mark, I'll, I'll give you the podium first. What do you think of all this? I, I, you know, this isn't the first letter of, of, of a politician being sent to uh, 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 Administrator Bolden on the topic of where a retired shuttle is going to go. Well, I'm going to do the uh, off-the-wall answer first. I just brought up a, a map showing where Adler Planetarium is, 
and uh, perhaps we could combine there's all of these competitors to have an orbiter at their facility maybe we could combine some of them let's say have the uh, Intrepid from New York City brought over to the Adler Planetarium and they could they could set it up on the flight deck for as long as it would last Oh boy! <laughs> Either that, or maybe uh, maybe shuttle Intrepid back and forth, like on tour. How about that? <laughs> oh boy! <laughs> now my worry is, um, I, I was in Chicago a few years ago, and I actually walked to the other planetarium from downtown. So first of all, I should give you an indication about just where this orbiter would be. It would be very close to the core, which is you know neither good nor bad. It's probably pretty good because then people can get over there fairly easily. But there just isn't a lot of space there. Um, no pun intended, but um, there's this park. Um, I can see that, but you don't want to store it outside. you got to put it into a facility somewhere. And um, I'm just wondering where they're going to find the space to uh, to store this 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 shuttle when it's uh, the planetarium itself is kind of sitting up on a hill near downtown in a park that's pretty crowded with uh, with other museums. Um, beautiful area, I know, to be sure, but uh, I'd just be curious about where they plan to put this thing. You know, I, I think it was uh, our, our, our uh, an acquaintance of mine, uh, Bob Perlman from uh, Collect Space. He basically said this has probably been one of the biggest political laden, you know, hot potatoes there has been in a very long time surrounding an artifact. Uh, he said he has never seen anything like this before, as far as far as the politics of getting an orbiter at, at you know in your state somewhere um, personally if if it one goes to Adler I would probably and, and no offense to Adler believe me it is one of the it is the first plan it is indeed the first planetarium in the country it is the the one of the few uh, places that uh, has not been you know really really uh, renov- you know, I don't want to say renovated, but it, you know, virtually unchanged. I and mean, we, we over here in New York, we we just nuked the Hayden Planetarium basically and built the the Rose City for, uh, for uh, the Rose uh, facility for uh, for Earth and space. I mean, it's a beautiful facility, but it's you know, it's it, it it's not the old Hayden. Um, but again, I mean, and I used to, you know, work at a planetarium, so nothing against planetariums. Believe me, they are. We need them. They they teach the public about the stars. They keep they, they they keep you know folks enthusiastic about learning about science and so on. But if an orbiter ends up at, at at the Adler Planetarium in Chicago, I am really going to be physically ill. The orbiters belong at places or near places that contributed to the program's success. Period. That that's. That is just my opinion. One definitely belongs at, at, at KSC, and and I believe Eric Berger had had a list of uh, uh, places that he thought was, were probably you know in the running or at least a you know pretty much a lock. He figured that um, KSC was a virtual lock. They they have one. Period. Um, in his opinion, it looked like that uh, the uh, U.S. Air Force Museum. In Dayton, Ohio, is probably you know in the running. Um, he mentioned that the Muse- Museum of Flight in Seattle is also a contender. Um, 
another contender that is you know, still there is the uh, Space Center in Houston. Uh, the, Mark, you mentioned the Intrepid here in New York, and then the California Science Center in, in L.A. Um, I'm still not too sure what what either the Intrepid or, or um, the California Science Center had anything to do with, with the shuttles, but um, I'm still saying that, that these birds belong at a place that they were connected to. That's just, just my opinion. I'll give you my uh, my thoughts on it. I haven't really thought it through to this point, but I think there's two places that are that are got to be done's, and one is the Smithsonian, two is Kennedy Space Center, and consideration aside from the uh, the centers that provided the operational support and tender loving care for these orbiters, but another consideration needs to be where they can be accessible to the people. And I don't know what the a highly accessible place would be for the third orbiter, but um, that's just something that really strikes me. And and I don't know how many people go through Houston, through the Johnson Space Center. Uh, I would love for it to be there, but on the other hand, if there was some place that could inspire another 10,000 students that would go through a facility on a tour in the course of a year, I would want that extra 10,000 kids to be inspired or have at least a chance to. What I think would be interesting is, uh, say the Smithsonian does get one of the orbiters, which is probably almost a guarantee at this point. Then they've got Enterprise, which uh, didn't go into space, but it was uh, used for landing tests. So it was you know, almost a full-fledged shuttle, I guess we could sort of say. It didn't do quite the same service as uh, the other ones, but it almost went up there. And uh, one thing that I'm sort of thinking about is, um, you know, here in Ottawa, we do have a few aerospace companies and stuff, but we don't see, see a lot of NASA hardware up here. And, you know, especially in a kid growing up in a family and everybody's got expenses, you don't get to travel all that much. And uh, we actually had, for 30 years, if you can believe it, the Apollo 7 spacecraft sitting right here in Ottawa. Um, there was some kind of wonderful sharing agreement going on between the Smithsonian and our uh, local science institution, the uh, Canada Science and Technology Museum. And uh, that's what I saw every day when I walked into that museum. Well, I didn't, I didn't go into the museum every day, but, you know, every few months I would go into that museum and there was an actual spacecraft that had actually been up to space. So maybe one thing that could be considered for the um, the people who would not get these shuttles permanently, the ones that have been into space, is to use uh, Enterprise as maybe almost a uh, traveling exhibit. So every couple of years or so, you wouldn't want to do it too often, I guess, because of the logistics involved. But wouldn't it be great if just every few years it could rotate to a different museum just to give a different audience the chance to, uh, to take a look at it? And maybe that would help cool some of the uh, the partisan feelings about where these shuttles should go. I'm glad you mentioned Enterprise, Les, because I was about, about ready to do that. It's an intriguing idea. Um, I mean, I, I know, however, I know what it, what, it, what it takes to go ahead and transport an orbiter Hither, thither, and yon, you're still going to need that, that 747 to do it. And I'm not too sure that's going to work. Although I would, I mean, I would love for, for at least one of them, like Enterprise, for instance, to be on the road, so to speak, to go ahead and, and visit places like Canada, you know, or to maybe even go ahead, going ahead and doing a national tour up there. Well, you know what? It actually did that before. Did you know that? I didn't know that, really. What happened was, after the uh, the Enterprise finished its test flights, they actually sent it on a tour of the United States, and it actually did land in Ottawa. This is in uh, about 82, 83, around there. 
I was not aware of that. Yep, that, that's a true story. Look it up. And uh, NASA has a few pictures on its websites actually, actually following the uh, the track of it. And uh, you have to do some creative Googling to find where it landed. But uh, it definitely was doing a tour of several states. And uh, it did dip up into Canada very briefly as well. And uh, apparently from the people I've talked to here who saw it, it was quite the sight to see. I was there. I was a very, very, very small child and uh, don't remember any of it. But there were pictures <laughs> to prove that, uh, that I actually was there um, looking at it. And uh, I was lucky enough, I had a relative who worked at the airport, and that's exactly where it was. And, you know, being 30-some years ago, or almost 30 years ago, we uh, we were able to get up right close to it and uh, just walk around, you know, this real-life spacecraft, almost. So, uh, yeah. I, I like your idea. And when you're talking about the Apollo 7 capsule, being able to actually see it, that's the thing that I think is essential about the shuttle, is that it actually be seen. And... Um, a, a quick story, I used to live in Tallahassee, Florida, and one year on the front cover of the phone book, which back pre-internet, the phone book was a big thing when it mm-hmm. came out because you had updated information, but on the cover of the phone book is the shuttle carrier aircraft with one of the orbiters on on top making a circle over the, the Capitol building at Florida, wow. and it was a air-to-air photography, and so you had this gorgeous picture of several things. One, the state capitol. Uh, the the you know beautiful sight in itself the way it's the way it kind of sits and but whatever but the best part was the shuttle and uh, you know you kind of felt a little sense of ownership and a sense of pride uh, until they turned out the phone book for the next year and it had some <laughs> other picture but uh, I think we actually kept it for a while <laughs> I would have taken the cover off. <laughs> I should mention that Enterprise didn't only make it to Canada. It also went overseas to France, Germany, Italy, sorry, Germany, Italy, and the United Kingdom, and uh, several U.S. states, like I said. So uh, it definitely made the rounds. <laughs> yeah. And, yeah. And I read that NASA was looking for some missions for their two uh, SCAs, their two 747s. And they're looking at some, you know, how can we utilize these aircraft? What What types of things can we do with them? And why not take the Enterprise on tour for some number of years. Huh. Why not? That would be a thought. I mean, you know, again, a worldwide tour, so to speak. That would be really interesting. wonder if the money exists for such a thing. Just <laughs> yeah, again, Here we go again. <laughs> yeah. In a perfect world. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> you know, who knows? Maybe somebody will, uh, some entrepreneur will step up and say, this is a great idea. We'll raise awareness about space, space exploration, and then it will happen. So who knows? <laughs> I guess on that happy note, that wraps up uh, this episode of Talking Space. Uh, uh, Mark Mark Ratterman, again, thank you so much for everything you did this week on behalf of the show. You've been really, really doing an incredible job for us over at the Kennedy Space Center, and I just wanted to go ahead and publicly say thank you. You've been really, really working your tail off for us, and and I can't wait to dive into more of the the, uh, uh, Alpha Magnetic Spectrometer uh, information that you've collected. I can't wait. We're going to be going uh, wall-to-wall with uh, with STS-134 shortly, and we're, we're going to be digging into that information. But again, Mark, uh, thank you ever so much. You're welcome, and uh, as we're counting down uh, three, just, just one day shy of uh, four weeks, uh, Endeavor will be in flight. And uh, a week from today is actually the middle of the TCDT, the Terminal Countdown Demonstration Test, and that's uh, March 29th through April 1st. And hopefully, I'll 
have the opportunity to uh, at least catch part of those activities that they make available to the media. I hope so. I mean, I still remember the question you you had asked Eric Bowe um, when, uh, or just the entire crew, and I think Eric Bowe uh, took that that question um, during the SDS 133 TCDT, and I thought that was really neat. So again, thank well, you. Well, this this is a, a cool bunch of astronauts, and I met him actually last August when AMS arrived from Europe, and uh, the entire 134 crew was there to greet AMS when it came off of the uh, C5 Super Galaxy that they flew it over on. And I got to talk to three, I think, or maybe four of the astronauts. And uh, there's some sharp people there. Indeed. indeed. No surprise. <laughs> no, no, not at all. Not at all. And uh, Liz Howell, thank you so much. This was really, really short notice um, in coming in to help us out tonight. And I really do appreciate it. Uh, if you Again, if uh, folks want to go ahead and uh, read Liz's work, um, she is a reporter with the Ottawa Business Journal, and uh, she writes the Parsec blog, I should say the award-winning Parsec blog. <laughs> so, again, Liz, thank you so much for coming in to, to join us tonight. I do appreciate it. Oh, no problem at all. And if uh, people want to get in touch with me, just to head over to my website, parsec.com. That's P-A-R-S-3-C.com. Yep. And there is a link to the Parsec website on our website, talk- talkingspaceonline.com. Again, uh, everyone, thank you very much for downloading us again, and uh, have a great week. We'll, We'll see you next week. Thanks. Space, the final frontier. These have been the voyages of the Space Shuttle Discovery. Her 30 year mission to seek out new science, to build new outposts, to bring nations together on the final frontier, to boldly go and do what no spacecraft has done before. 